Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, bioethical issues in the COVID-19 pandemic, resource allocation, triage guidelines, and other concerns. Dr. Kenneth Prager, Director of Clinical Ethics at Columbia University Medical Center, speaks with Alan Brudner, Chair of the Bioethical Issues Committee of the New York City Bar Association and a partner at Catton Muchin Rosenman about ethical issues in healthcare arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Alan Brudner. Hello, it's May 5th, 2020, and welcome to our podcast, which is also our meeting of the Bioethical Issues Committee of the New York City Bar Association. I'm Alan Brudner, chair of the committee. What we are going to focus on this evening is a topic we've all been hearing and reading about, and some of us have been dealing with, ethical issues and challenges in allocating scarce resources in the COVID-19 pandemic. We're excited and honored to have a guest speaker with us who is a real expert to talk about these issues, Dr. Kenneth Prager. Dr. Prager is a professor of medicine the Director of Medical Ethics and Chair of the Medical Ethics Committee at Columbia University Medical Center. He received his MD degree from Harvard and completed his clinical training in internal medicine at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center and the University of Chicago. Dr. Prager has been a pulmonologist for 47 years. He teaches medicine and medical ethics to medical students, house officers, and nurses. His writings on medicine and medical ethics have appeared in medical journals and textbooks, as well as on the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Prager was a regular guest lecturer in Israel for the Ben-Gurion University MD program in international health and medicine in collaboration with Columbia University Health Sciences. He has received numerous honors for his patient care, clinical expertise, teaching, and contributions to organ donation. We could go on about Dr. Prager's many awards and achievements, but we want to turn to tonight's topic, the allocation of scarce resources and the ethical challenges and concerns that arise in connection with that issue. And on the topic of making the best use of scarce resources in practicing medicine, there are two experiences in Dr. Prager's biography that I wanted to flag for you. First, Dr. Prager spent two years in the Indian Health Service practicing general medicine on the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation in South Dakota after his medical internship. Second, in 1986, he held clandestine medical clinics in the Soviet Union during a visit to Jews called Refuseniks who were persecuted because of their desire to emigrate to Israel. During this subsequent period of glasnost, when the regime relaxed its control over the Soviet Union, Dr. Prager set up the first U.S.-Soviet medical student exchange program between Columbia physicians and surgeons and the first Moscow Medical Academy. So I thought we would just start our discussion by asking Dr. Prager to talk a little bit about those experiences and how they might relate to the issue we are now confronting of working under difficult circumstances with scarce resources. Dr. Prager. Well, first of all, thank you, Alan, for inviting me to address uh, the group. I'm, I'm very honored. Looking forward to our discussion tonight. Looking forward to your questions. Uh, to get to the answer what you said, when I was on the Indian Reservation, um, I would say the parallel uh, to what the current situation is as follows, and I'll be getting into this as I get into my talk. Um, I was in a situation with three other doctors where we were in an extremely remote uh, Indian reservation. And we had to practice general medicine, not just medicine, pediatrics, orthopedics, obstetrics. Um, and we were not trained in this. I had a one year uh, training program in straight medicine. And so I felt uh, ill-equipped to deal with emergencies that related to pediatrics or orthopedics and nevertheless, we were the only show in town. And so I know what it is like to do your best uh, in a situation of a medical emergency when you may not have the requisite training, but nevertheless, you're it. And on many occasions, we had to, me and my three colleagues, we had to provide the best medical care that we could given the circumstances that we found ourselves in. 
we were not uh, arrogant. We did not think that we knew it all. And when there were circumstances above and beyond our control, we did have the resources to be able to fly somebody out of Eagle Butte. There was no airport there. We used the undertaker's airplane to uh, evacuate somebody and we would be in the plane with them. But, um, uh, but I, I know what it's like. And, and the reason that segues into the current situation is that currently there are physicians who are put in a similar situation where their training is not optimal for the types of critical care that they have to provide to COVID patients because of the overwhelming surge, the avalanche of patients coming in. Uh, and so they feel ill-equipped as I did. And uh, just, however, as I felt that there were limits to what I could do, uh, when I felt I was over my head, uh, I had uh, options. Uh, and so too, these physicians as well have to um, exercise their discretion, use their ethical approach to the patient and know when they simply cannot uh, do what is necessary. Um, when I was in the Soviet Union, it was a different situation in that it was clear to me how horrendous the general level of medical care was for the average Soviet citizen. And there was very little that I can do. I brought with me some drugs and some medications and so forth. But I think that the parallel with today is I felt the frustration of knowing that here in front of me were patients that if they had the proper uh, treatment or the proper time or the proper resources, they could be helped significantly. And so too, when you have 10 or 15 patients on a respirator in the emergency department waiting for a bed in the ICU, you feel similarly compromised, frustrated, and, and constrained. So in that respect, I think I could share some of the emotional uh, distress that some of my colleagues, my incredible colleagues, my younger colleagues at the hospital all across New York City are feeling. With that then as an introduction, let me start then with my, with my talk. So I'm, I'm going to speak about um, ethical issues in the scarce resource allocation in the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm going to speak not just about uh, scarce resources, but other ethical issues that have come up uh, in the course of this, and there are many of them. So um, very simple question that we are faced with. And remember, we had to come up with policies in the middle of March. It was not clear to any of the hospitals in New York State, or certainly in New York City, how many patients we'd be facing, how sick would they be. So you always hope for the best and you plan for the worst. And we planned for the worst. There were a group of us at New York Presbyterian Hospital that met on a daily basis, drawing up a protocol for how can we save the most lives in a circumstance when there would be limitations of resources. So the greatest ethical challenge here in the current pandemic how do we ethically allocate scarce life-saving resources to save the most lives when demand outpaces supply? So we keep reading about uh, the shortages or potential anticipated shortages of ventilators and masks. Are those the resources we're talking about or is it beyond that? Well, I put even before material resources, I put human resources because we, were, we are, were, and probably will be stretched in in terms of physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, et cetera, et cetera. These are our most precious resources, and they have been stretched thin given the overwhelming number of critically ill patients who present at the hospital. But of course, there are the material resources that are scarce as well. And I put ICU beds in front of ventilators you probably read all the time about, uh, initially this was portrayed as a shortage of ventilators. I'll tell you right now, we have not run out of ventilators in New York City. Um, the problem, at, but at the time that we were formulating these policies, it was not clear whether we would have enough ventilators or not, and whether we would have to make these agonizing choices. What we are short of are, we have enough ventilators, but when you put a patient on a ventilator, it's a very sophisticated treatment. You need an ICU bed. You need, you need the nurses and the doctors to care for that patient. In addition, we did not know at that time that part of the COVID disease is a very high incidence of kidney failure. And so we have, run, we have had scarcity of dialysis machines and the liquid material, the dialysate that is necessary in using these machines, certain medications, 
certain personal protective uh, equipment. You've read about this, how doctors and nurses have to treasure their one N95 mask for a week, a mask that is meant to be used once when you encounter a patient, but because of a critical resources, because of the inability to plan appropriately for this crisis, they would have to put it in their little bag and carry it with them for an entire week. Things are doing better right now, but still we have to harbor and be very careful about our allocation of PPE. And COVID testing material, again, things are looking better now, but initially the only person who would get a COVID test would be somebody who was sick enough to warrant admission to the hospital. Clearly insufficient to carry out the appropriate um, uh, uh, procedure for uh, monitoring this disease and monitoring uh, patients who have it in their and their contacts. So what are the options when you have a severe shortage of resources and an overwhelming demand for them? Well, one way of approaching it is simply on a first come first serve basis. Whoever gets to the emergency room first, regardless of whether that patient has a realistic opportunity of surviving, if they're in respiratory failure, you put them on the ventilator. You take the ICU bed. You have the nurse and the doctor take care of them, even though the next person behind them may be a 35-year-old person with no comorbid conditions who has a realistic chance of surviving, but only with the ventilator. But the person who came was 85 years old with dementia from a nursing home, first come, first serve. That's one way of, 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 of dealing with this. Um, uh, clearly, from a point of view of how can we save the most lives, that is not the best approach but it does remove any ethical quandaries. You don't have to think about it. A second way is a triage way. It's a battlefield way of, of, of approaching it. We favor those most likely to survive over those less likely, regardless of their pla places in the line. So we take that younger person without comorbid conditions, we give them the scarce resource of the ICU bed, and the other person who has minimal chance of survival, we do not even know that person arrived first. And this goes according to the philosophical approach of utilitarianism. How can we do the most good for the greatest number? I but just, I just want to ask you something right there, doctor. I mean, sure. there is a value judgment even, even built into the, the idea of triage, right? Because you can envision, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I would agree with it, but you could envision a society where the decision is made to help, to first help somebody who is a government official or some other class of people that's perceived to be more important than somebody else. Absolutely. And I'm going to get to that. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, uh, it's all well and good to say triage when I give you a simple uh, example that I just did, but it does get more, more uh, complicated. For example, should we, should we favor, and I'm jumping ahead, but since you raised it, should we give preference to the doctors and nurses who are risking their lives? And when they come in and need a ventilator, should they have preference over people who are not healthcare providers? So this is something which is an area of controversy. It involves ethical judgments and so forth. So you, you raise a very important point. So getting back then to utilitarianism, trying to do the most good for the greatest number, but in, in terms of effecting a triage policy, you have to say, how good are we at prognostication? I can give you the uh, simple case of a much younger person who has a clearly reversible disease versus a very old person who has multiple comorbidities, but, but that's the opposite ends of the spectrum. What happens when we have people, one of whom is just slightly sticker than the other person or has slightly more uh, comorbidities? Um, how good are, and also how good are we at saying we're going to give this person life support because we think they have a good chance of survival and not to the other person because we don't. We could be wrong in our prognostication. So how, how is that carried out? And finally, number three, how can we avoid discrimination? How can we not discriminate to make sure we don't discriminate against people who are uninsured, people who are here uh, uh, illegally? people of a particular race, or people, uh, what about age discrimination? Uh, what about disability discrimination? And so on and so forth. So triage uh, on, the, on the surface looks pretty straightforward, but it is anything but straightforward. And I'm going to put in a third option here because 
the third option is actually the one that has come to pass in New York City, and that is not doing first come, first serve, not rolling out a triage policy, but expanding in an emergent uh, situation, expanding your resources to try and accommodate all those who come by opening up your hospital and making OR rooms in, uh, I'm sorry, making ICU rooms in operating rooms, in areas where people, in cafeterias, et cetera, et cetera. Now that means, of course, that you have to spread your, your um, you have to spread your uh, uh, personnel thin, and that raises serious questions of quality of care as well. You can't double your ICU capacity without suffering some decrement in the quality of care. But that, in fact, is how all of the hospitals in New York City have dealt with this crisis. But that raises other ethical issues. So, Dr. Prager, what are the ethical issues involved in uh, triage? Now, the ethical principles that are involved in triage, and really not just in triage, but in overall caring for, the, for these patients, there are four medical ethical principles that we generally refer to. We talk about patient autonomy, we talk about beneficence, we talk about non-maleficence, and we talk about justice. So let's look at each one of those principles and how they relate to the COVID crisis. Patient autonomy. Basically, we feel that we should respect a patient's wishes or the wishes of their family if they lack capacity regarding access to life-sustaining treatment. Patients have the right to decide if they wish or do not wish to have certain treatments, life support, and so on. But what happens in the exercise of autonomy? Should patients have absolute autonomy in a time of crisis, in a time where our resources are limited, if they want to receive life support even if their prognosis is dismal, if they want to have that ventilator even though it is clear that they have zero chance of survival. Should we respect the principle of autonomy? Second principle, beneficence. Do the most good possible for our patients. It's obviously, uh, it stands to reason. But what happens when we have a crisis is the physician's obligation to do what is best for his or her patient ever trumped by acting for the greater good of society. In a triage situation, what we're saying is we want, we're considering a policy in which that patient that I see in the emergency room with whom I have now a doctor-patient relationship, I would be withholding life support from that patient for the greater good of society because it is much more likely that I will save a life of another individual who has a much greater chance of survival. So that would be a significant compromise of this principle of beneficence. Non-maleficence, first do no harm. These triage uh, protocols also, they involve withholding life support, for example, not putting a person on a ventilator, not putting a person on dialysis if we felt that it was futile, that the patient had no chance of surviving. And some of the uh, principles, act some of these uh, uh, policies actually call for withdrawing life support. If a patient is put on a ventilator and a week later, is clearly failing, is hypotensive, is receiving maximal medication, and is near death, is it ethical to remove that patient from the life support, making room for a patient with a much better chance of survival to occupy that bed or to get that uh, ventilator? And that clearly would seem to be a violation of this principle of first do no harm by withdrawing or withholding life support from someone it would be done, of course, theoretically for the greater good, but nevertheless, there is that violation. And finally, the principle of justice. We want to fairly allocate scarce resources. Now, let me, let me start this by saying we have been practicing triage for decades in the area of organ transplant. If you have heart failure and you show up and you're evaluated, and the doctors and the uh, doctors have a committee meeting and they say, we are not going to give this patient a heart transplant because we think that the chance of this person surviving uh, uh, is very poor. 
we are, and we'll give it to somebody with a much better chance of utilizing that scarce resource and living out years of, of, of good quality life, that is triage. We've been practicing that. Society has not risen in protest against that because society has acknowledged the fact that the only way to get the most good out of the scarce resource of an organ is to give it to those patients who have the greatest chance of benefiting from it. Well, how is it different than with a ventilator? The difference is as follows. When we withhold the heart from that patient because we feel they cannot benefit from it, that patient is not going to die immediately. They may live for another for weeks or months or perhaps even longer. So the, the, uh, the result of that triaging is not felt immediately, whereas the triage policy that we're talking about here in COVID, the result is immediate. The patient is likely to die within hours or days or at most weeks. And so it's much more, it's a much more acute situation. It's a much more acute situation. Again, the fair allocation of scarce resources, any triage policy must be vetted carefully to be fair to all patients, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, immigration, insurance status, disability, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the basic features of these uh, triage policies? Now, the basic features you should understand, and by the way, um, New York City does not have, as of now, any triage policy that is operative. And as far as I know, I don't think there are any triage policies operative anywhere in the country now, even though there have been at least 60 such policies that have been formulated. So uh, why are we talking about it? We're talking about it because there might be a time when triage policies have to be uh, uh, affected if there is another surge and we simply do have no longer any resources and we must uh, have, have triage. Um, also because discussion of this does raise ethical issues that pertain to issues that do not directly relate to triage. So let me just say that um, people across the United States have been in hospitals, in departments of health, they have been um, writing triage policies across the country just in case. And, and I'm, it's a theme in variations. Almost all of these triage policies consist of a triage committee. This is a committee of between three and six people. These would be individuals who would be specialists in um, intensive care, intensivists, usually one or two. There would be a person from the ethics committee, usually a nurse, sometimes patient from patient, a person from patient services. And this committee would decide who shall receive life support or who would have it withdrawn based on a scoring system that uses objective medical criteria as well as, and I write here plus minus clinical judgment because the degree of clinical judgment really would vary. Some people shy away from clinical judgment because they think it introduces biases. And other people, and we should only use the medical data, and other people say, no, of course you need clinical judgment. Medical data are too rigid. You have to use your clinical judgment for this to be appropriate, ethical, and clinically ap appropriate. So that's the triage committee. And the triage committee does not interact with the patient. They are simply presented with data from the physician who is interacting with the patient. There are exclusion criteria in almost all of these uh, triage policies. Certain criteria, if the patient meets them, will exclude them from receiving life support. Somebody, for example, who has had a cardiac arrest in the ambulance on the way to the hospital who has been resuscitated, the data would indicate that this person has a minimal chance of surviving even with continued provision of life support. Somebody who has suffered severe brain damage, hypoxic brain damage or traumatic brain damage would be another type of person. And finally, if in the opinion of uh, the triage committee, a patient presenting clearly is so sick with a constellation of medical uh, abnormalities that that patient has virtually no chance of surviving, that patient would meet an exclusion criteria and would not get uh, life support. Now, um, these, as I say, these severe medical conditions would indicate the remote 
to non-existent likelihood of surviving to discharge even with life support. And what is the objective scoring system? There are several, but the one that is most frequently used in these triage policies is something called the SOFA score, Sequential Organ Failure Assessment. And this is calculated on admission. We look at laboratory data and it is a way of assessing the person's heart function, kidney function, respiratory function, mental function, as well as some other lab data. And the person is given a score. The higher the score, the lower the likelihood of survival, the lower the score, the greater the likelihood of survival. And based on the SOFA score, the patient then are placed in roughly four categories. Either the prognosis for survival is too poor to justify a ventilator or an ICU bed, somebody who has a very high SOFA score, or somebody who is too healthy. They don't need it. They would not need a ventilator. And then you come to the two categories which are most relevant to our discussion. These are patients who have a favorable prognosis, but they must have a ventilator in order to survive. And the last category would be a patient who has a less favorable prognosis. These are sicker patients, but they may benefit from a ventilator. The exclusion criteria that I mentioned before would be, and I mentioned this, an unwitnessed cardiac arrest, somebody who comes in in shock, and even though they are getting medication to raise their blood pressure, the blood pressure does not respond. A patient like that would be in an exclusion criteria. Somebody, as I mentioned, with brain injury, and I mentioned any condition that it is felt the patient would die either imminently or very, very soon, even with aggressive therapy. The patients who would get the ventilator would then be placed in an intensive care unit for a trial of ICU treatment. They would be reassessed at regular intervals. Patients who are improving would continue on life support, but patients who are not improving or deteriorating, the ventilator in many of these policies would be withdrawn if, if needed for patients with a favorable prognosis who needed that particular resource. Oh, I, I just would I just want to say one thing. So it, it does sound to me, listening to it um, as a as a lawyer, um, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense in that it basically tells the healthcare providers in advance, based on a policy, how these decisions are going to be made. It takes the provider, it gives the provider kind of the ability to to um, basically tell the patients and the families what the criteria are going to be with less sort of individualized pressure on the, on the person uh, explaining to the family what's happening. Um, and it, would, it seems to me they have the potential at least to, to sort of make everybody feel as if, even if they don't agree with the ultimate decision, there's been some kind of like what I want to call due process in this, right? Um, so it, those seem like positives. I'm, I'm sure you're going to talk about why there aren't, why, why the hospitals haven't actually adopted these, but, but they, it does seem like there would be positive effects coming from these. Yes, uh, I, I mean, I agree with you, Alan. That is the hope that we try to make justice fair. It's a fair playing field. Everybody is, is playing by the rules. The doctors, the patients are being assessed equally. We would hope that that would mitigate the feeling of, of um, anger, frustration uh, uh, on the part of families. But when you're the doctor facing fa uh, pa uh, families like that, I can tell you that um, it doesn't always carry the day. People, you're dealing with a life and death situation and people are not sitting in a cool and calm situation where they say, you've got an, a just policy. We appreciate the fact that you're treating everybody the same, and we understand the fact that our loved one is not going to be getting it. Some families would say that. Don't don't get me wrong, but the I can't I can't minimize the amount of human emotion that is involved in these types of situations. It's 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 extreme for the families, for the doctors, the nurses, and when the patient is awake and alert for the patient as well. Um, I imagine. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine there's some competition among the doctors, right? My, I, my, if I'm a doctor, I want my patient potentially to, you know, to get the yeah. life-saving treatment. Correct. It, look, as I mentioned before, 
the doctor-patient relationship, the doctor has to advocate for his or her patient. That's their job. The purpose of the triage committee is to isolate the life or death decision and take it out of the hands of the physician who has that relationship with the patient. This decision is not being made by him or her. It's being made by a committee that hopefully is adhering to objective principles and trying to be as fair as possible. That's, that's exactly the point. So let me make a distinction over here. Uh, and, well, this is actually what I just mentioned. Withholding or withdrawing. When I say ventilator, I mean really life support. There are other ways of withholding or withdrawing life support. Somebody who is on medications called pressors that are maintaining the blood pressure, that's a form of life support. Dialysis is a form of life support and so forth. It's not just the ventilator, but I use that as the, as the key word here. So the decision is not made. It is not made by the treating physician. It's made by the triage committee based on objective criteria that we hope to apply fairly to all the patients. And by the way, the triage committee doesn't know the name of the person, doesn't know what, what race or gender they are. They just know their age and they just know their medical facts, period. Um, I can tell you, after being in medicine for a very long time, that withholding life support is infinitely easier emotionally than withdrawing life support. By withholding, for example, making somebody do not attempt resuscitation, do not intubate, is much easier emotionally for the physician and for the family than saying we're taking somebody off the ventilator, we're stopping the dialysis. And even though the ethics literature will say that there is no ethical difference between the two, I've never accepted that. First of all, I think it is ethically different, and I think clearly it is emotionally very, very different. And so a policy that directs itself mostly to withholding life support in appropriate circumstances, I think is something that would be much more acceptable to physicians and to families than a policy which would involve withdrawing life support. Um, and finally, there is the need for rapid goals of care discussion with the family and the role of palliative care. We have used our palliative care physicians to excellent advantage because they are in the emergency department, they are in the intensive care unit, and they sit down with the family. Of course, now the families are not allowed in the hospital, so they don't sit down with them. They talk to the family on, by phone or by Zoom, and they, they try to uh, communicate with the family what are, what are the reasonable, what is the likely outcome of their loved one's situation? What, what would he or she have wanted? What are their goals in life? What are the quality of life that they would want? And I can't tell you how important and helpful our palliative care doctors, social workers, and nurses have been in this very, very critical and difficult period. So we've talked uh, a fair amount about um, the upside or benefits um, uh, that can be uh, conferred by these policies. Um, what, what are the concerns about these policies, Dr. Prager? The concerns with the triage policy uh, it started off in Washington State. You may recall that there were a number of deaths in a nursing home, and they wanted to roll out a triage policy, and immediately the disability community was very concerned about it. They felt that patients with disabilities, either intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities, would be discriminated against, that they would be given lower priority. And I can tell you that in an ideal situation and in the policy that we have formulated at Columbia, although we have not used it, as I said, there is no hospital in New York City that I know that has actually used it. Um, we bend over backwards to make sure that people with disabilities are on the same level playing field as people without. Only in so far as we feel that a physical disability might impact on the likelihood of survival, would that be appropriate? People, for example, who have severe heart failure and would be impacted negatively by the SOFA score, we don't consider it that we are discriminating against people with heart failure. We're saying that people with severe, severe heart failure, because 
of the fact that they are unlikely to survive a severe COVID infection requiring a ventilator, that it's inappropriate to provide them with that form of support. And so too, somebody with a severe physical disability that might impact on the possibility of survival, only then would it be, would it be considered. Nevertheless, the disability community is quite concerned about these policies, and it's understandable why. In addition, you come to the age issue, and you'll see a lot written about should age play an appropriate role in life support decisions, and if so, how? So to take the extremes, if you have somebody who is 85 years old or 90 years old who is coming in from a nursing home, and the patient is, um, let's say, otherwise uh, may have a mild degree of dementia, but you have some, and you had only one ventilator. Again, this is a thought, a thought experiment for you, if you will. And you had somebody who's 30 years old, and they came in at the same time. Should the person who is 30 get that ventilator? Because depriving him or her of the ventilator would deprive him or her of far greater years of life than the person who was 90 years old. And if you say, okay, that's an easy one. Well, what about somebody who's 50 and somebody 45? Where do you draw the line? And what about, uh, so how, if at all, should age play a factor? I don't have an answer for you. All I can tell you is that there is a lot of discussion about it. Um, and uh, some people have even raised the uh, criterion and say, not only should you look at age, but you should look at survivability in terms of years of likelihood. So take into account not just the likelihood of survival to discharge, but how much longer would that person likely live after discharge? And I think personally that that gets into very dangerous territory, first of all, because of our inexactness in being able to project life expectancy. And I think that that is something that we should definitely shy, stay away from. But the issue of age and what role, if at all, it should play is something that's been discussed a lot in the ethics uh, literature. And then another concern with the triage policy is their bias against people with poorly treated medical conditions because of poor access to healthcare who have a worse prognosis for survival, particularly minority communities. What do I mean by that? We know that one of the the risk factors for death in severe COVID pneumonia, the risk factors are hypertension, diabetes, um, obesity. And uh, we know that there are certain segments of the community, in particular, the African-American community suffers from a great deal of hypertension and diabetes and obesity. And the reasons are complex, but part of the reason certainly is that uh, many of Many of these individuals do not have access to health care. They don't have insurance. And so if they come in and need life support, do we then double the discrimination by saying, well, you didn't have good health care. You have hypertension and diabetes, and that puts you at a disadvantage for survival. So we're not going to give you the ventilator. Um, it, it would seem obviously on the face of it, that's, that's terribly unfair. It's like double jeopardy. However, looking at it the other way, are we writing the injustices done to this community or to similar communities? Are we writing the injustice by putting them on a ventilator and the likelihood of their survival is, is markedly, markedly diminished? Are we writing those social injustices? So I'm, I'm asking you questions because you can see the complexity of all of these issues as they present us in the emergency department. How much are these kinds of issues discussed by students in medical school, as opposed to just teaching them how to take care of patients when they have unlimited resources? I, I would say they are discussed. I, I think it probably varies from medical school to medical school. I can tell you at Columbia, it's discussed a lot, a lot. And um, it, it is, as a matter of fact, I have, to, I have to prepare another talk for next week or the week after about social inequities in medical access, um, uh, uh, you know, which is brought out by the COVID crisis is kind of magnifying all of these social injustices. So I can tell you as far as Columbia goes, there's a lot of discussion about this, which is of course very healthy. Now, 
How would the public react if we did implement the triage policy? I can tell you that um, in order for this to actually roll out, you would need this to roll out from the government down. This is not a policy that would be enacted by Hospital A or Hospital B because of the because of the it's 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 dynamite, so to speak. It's the third rail of medicine, I would say, a triage policy. And in order for this to be rolled out, it would have to come from the democratically elected representatives of the people, from the governor, from the legislature. This is not a policy that New York Presbyterian or NYU or Mount Sinai would unilaterally uh, roll out. That's that's in, it's absolutely impossible. It would not it would not be right, and it would not be acceptable. You need public trust, and um, as I said before, there is already mistrust in the disability and minority communities. There's a great deal of mistrust, and I can tell you that there is a great deal of. Uh, a, a desire on the part of the New York State government and Department of Health to stay away from triage policies unless unless it were absolutely necessary. So the third the third option that I mentioned earlier about expanding ICU beds that is that is what basically we have resorted to because the uh, triage policy is felt to be so uh, loaded with uh, ethical and societal and political, if I may say, issues as well. So it would need legitimacy from the governor and legislature to carry this out. It must not be perceived by the public, as I said before, as being the policy of only certain hospitals. It must be transparent and it must treat all people, ethnicities, immigrants, insured and uninsured alike. Now, the other caveat and this is a major caveat, physicians must be guaranteed legal protection if such a policy were be to carried out. And before I get to the legal issues, let me just mention uh, a couple of other controversial questions about triage. Should patients who require more intense care be disadvantaged? If you, you say, well, this person has a chance of, of surviving, but it's going to be weeks in the ICU and this per person or these people we think that they just need a couple of days, would we, would we disadvantage those that we think would have a much, much longer course because they would require far more uh, resources? Should patients with a poor long-term prognosis be disadvantaged, as I mentioned before, even if it is agreed that the patient can survive to discharge, but because of their chronic illness, we think that their long-term prognosis is poor, so let's give the uh, scarce resource to somebody with a more favorable long-term prognosis. And here, coming back to what I said at the very beginning, and there's a lot of discussion about this, should the healthcare providers be favored? Physicians, nurses, what about the, the people who environmental health, the janitor, the people who sweep up the floor? They are dying too. They are getting sick from exposure. The social workers, um, should they be favored in allocations because they are putting their lives on the line? And if so, how? Do they get an automatic ventilator? In a case of where it's very close, we don't flip a coin, we give it to the healthcare worker. And if we don't give them some favored status, how would this affect morale? And I can tell you the morale of the healthcare providers is a very critical issue. They are under tremendous emotional distress, uh, stress. And how would this be perceived by the public? If we make a policy, we doctors make a policy favoring doctors, well, isn't that self-serving? That's not right. You know, you have a conflict of interest. You shouldn't be doing this. So as you see, there are a lot more questions than there are simple answers. Now, here we get to the legal liability. This was a, uh, a short um, uh, editorial, if you will, in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Cohen, Crespo, and White just recently. What would be the legal liability of physicians who would carry out a triage policy, the kind that I've just mentioned. Well, without uh, protection, this would be a major obstacle to implementing any triage policy. And I quote from this article, existing federal and state statutes provide limited immunity to physicians and nurses in times of emergency. But importantly, these laws do not clearly immunize decisions to withhold or withdraw ventilators, which might be seen as willful, reckless or wanton conduct, and thus beyond the scope of existing shields. Moreover, only a small number of states extend immunity 
to criminal charges. It is conceivable that a doctor might be, might be uh, charged with criminal charges in removing a ventilator, even if that doctor did so at the behest of the triage committee based on a totally fair uh, a policy. The article continues, clinicians making triage decisions do so at the judgment of future juries. A clinician who intentionally withdraws a ventilator from a non-consenting patient could conceivably be charged with criminal homicide if the clinician knows that removing the ventilator will result in the death of the patient, the applicable charge would be murder. Needless to say, there is no physician that would even con contemplate carrying out an action like this unless he or she were absolutely sure that they would have legal uh, protection. That is aside from the moral distress in carrying out an action like this. So Cohen and his colleagues call for now remember this was written earlier, and this was written at a time when it was felt that we would need to have triage policies, and I have not put that out of, out of the possibility as well. We are just early in this COVID epidemic, believe me, we have a lot more to go. The need for urgent action by state governments, they state, with potentially thousands of triage decisions on the horizon, clinicians should not be expected to move ahead with implementing triage protocols based on the hope that prosecutorial discretion or sympathetic juries will protect them in the future. State legislatures much, must take action to immunize all healthcare clinicians and healthcare entities from civil and criminal liability for ventilator triage decisions made in good faith compliance with mandatory or voluntary state approved protocols. I believe the article stated that there was only one state, Maryland, which had a statute which would be applicable to a triage policy, which means all of the other states do not, which means that no physician, there is nobody who would carry out a policy like this unless they had clear-cut uh, legal immunity. Now, instead of uh, an act giving immunity for a triage situation, New York State did enact, the New York State Legislature enacted on April the 7th, um, just about a month ago, it grant an act called the Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act. And this grants qualified immunity to hospitals, nursing homes, administrators, board members, physicians, nurses from civil and criminal liability arising from decisions, acts, and omissions occurring from the beginning of the governor's emergency declaration on March the 7th through its expiration and covers liability stemming from the care of individuals with and without COVID-19. The immunity will not apply to intentional criminal misconduct, gross negligence, but makes clear that acts, omissions, and decisions resulting from a resource or staffing shortage will be covered. So there are two caveats here. This immunity, number one, it only lasts uh, uh, as long as the legislature and the governor say that this emergency will continue. And actually it's being considered now whether to extend it. And also the hospital would have to document a resource or staffing shortage in order for this to be uh, go into effect. Now, how does this actually apply? I'll tell you how it applies. I mentioned before that the way the hospitals have been dealing with this onslaught of patients with COVID has been to expand the ICU uh, resources and to expand the um, human resources, doctors and nurses. Now the quality of care in these expanded ICUs cannot measure up to the quality of care during normal times. It's impossible. We have people who are given very uh, quick uh, uh, courses in how to deal with patients in ventilators. Um, the ratio of a nurse to a patient goes from one to two to one to four. And so it is felt that this Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act would protect the doctors, nurses, and hospitals if there is perceived to be a quality issue in the care of patients as a result of this marked expansion of the ICU capability. And, and they need it. And they need it, believe me, if the, if the doctors did not feel that they were protected in these compromised situations, they, uh, they would not come to work. They, the notion that they would be sued for putting their lives on the line in treating patients 
in these extenuating circumstances that they would be risking legal liability would be totally unacceptable and incomprehensible. I just want to say with respect to the Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act that there is this qualified immunity that covers many decisions and actions healthcare providers will be involved with in the pandemic, but we live in a litigious environment. When Governor Cuomo first signed the executive order in March that conveyed some immunity, there was some language in it that was less than crystal clear. For instance, a tort lawyer who's accustomed to litigating over whether a particular action or event was a proximate cause of an injury um, might litigate a case over whether a patient's harm or damages were, quote-unquote, a direct harm, which was one of the terms in the order. A lot of this kind of language became much less critical when the legislature passed the act in April which made clear that its purpose was to confer broad immunity. It speaks in broader strokes. But uh, as I say, we live in a litigious society. And if I were betting, when all is said and done and this pandemic finally, hopefully, comes to an end, there's likely to be at least some litigation that tests the limits of the immunity conferred by the Act. Well, let me just respond to that by saying uh, I'm a physician. Uh, I know how the threat of malpractice hangs as a sort of Damocles over every single doctor in normal times. And if these doctors that are running through walls, risking their lives, upsetting their family lives, et cetera, um, if, if, they, if there is a, a, a tsunami of legal uh, claims against them of malpractice, I think that would be so, so unjust and so cruel, really except in an extraordinary circumstance where it could be proven that this was, you know, gross versus virtually criminal negligence. I think it would be just awful because these folks, I, I don't think any of you can understand or put yourselves in the position of what these doctors and nurses are doing day by day. You get a little bit of an inkling by reading some of the New York Times articles and their Sunday section and so forth. You can't imagine. I get calls every day by these physicians and by these nurses and asking for ethical guidance. They are, they, I, I, I'm using the term heroes, you've heard it, they are heroes, they really are. And so the notion that they might really face uh, a tort uh, malpractice uh, as a result of what they're doing is, is to me just, um, just, it would be awful, just so unjust and in a way really even cruel. So I just, that's my editorial comment for the evening and you can take it or leave. I just want to. I just want to say I completely agree with you. I wasn't implying that I would well, be I, on the other side well, of this. I, believe me. I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I will tell you that I have a morning uh, session every day for the past six weeks. I have been meeting on the phone with um, hospital leadership, with hospital legal counsel. So we we take this responsibility very seriously. We are not cavalier about this. Believe me. Our primary objective is to provide the best possible care to every single patient, to save as many lives as possible, to deal with the angst of the families as humanely as possible. Believe me, it's inspiring to see how these people have risen to the occasion. So I just, I just have to tell you that. And, and, and yet, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm sure that there, there probably will be uh, suits at the end. But I, I, I do... I do think and hope that the courts, when they if they eventually are forced to look at this, will be as understanding about it uh, from from the perspective that you're describing um, as as you would hope, because because clearly this is an incredibly stressful and unusual circumstance. So, oh, perfect. The toll on healthcare providers. How how perfect. The perfect segue. Thank you, Alan. Physicians, nurses, and ancillary hospital personnel have performed heroically under the most stressful conditions. The threat of becoming infected, the threat of spreading infection to their family members. They have families. They go home to their wife, to their husbands, to their kids, some of them to their parents. The need, and, and so the, the, there's that concern. Some of them go home and they stay in the basement. They actually, or, or some of them don't even go home. How they're private lives have been turned upside down. The need to physically separate themselves from their family at times is, is tremendous, enormous emotional toll of dealing with large numbers of dying patients 
who are separated from their families. And I'm sure all of you have read in the newspaper about the tragedy of the recent suicide of the director of the Allen Pavilion Emergency Room, the Allen Pavilion, which is part of Columbia University Medical Center. She had no past history of mental illness, was a wonderful human being, beloved by all. She got COVID, she recovered from it. She went to her parents in, in I think in South Carolina in the South, and she committed suicide. Um, uh, so just to give you an idea uh, of, of the incredible emotional stress that, that these individuals are, are having to sustain every single day. And uh, finally, I'll mention one other thing. There is moral distress of having to continue life support for patients who have no chance of survival, whose families want everything done. Understandably, they can't bear the thought of their loved one dying. And so even though there is virtually zero chance that their loved one will survive, they're on ventilators, they're getting pressors, they're on dialysis, they're on multiple antibiotics, and they have zero chance of surviving. So these uh, healthcare providers feel this is inappropriate. We are risking ourselves caring for these people, putting lines in them, uh, having to enter their rooms multiple times a day, turning them over on their stomach, proning them to try to get better oxygenation. And we feel that we are prolonging the dying process of these patients. And the only reason that we're doing this is because the families continue to insist. In addition, the scarce resources of ventilators, dialysis machines, the personal protective equipment while treating these patients, these are concerns of the physicians. And so I, I, this is part of the distress. It's not just of all the death and dying around them, but also the distress of we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be treating patients X, Y, and Z. We're prolonging their suffering, prolonging their dying, and we are exposing ourselves to the risk of getting this disease. And I mentioned before the critical role of palliative care physicians. So Dr. Prager, I'm wondering what you foresee uh, in the future uh, once this pandemic um, finally, hopefully, uh, ends. Um, how will it affect the practice of medicine? What will happen when COVID is over? And I don't think this is going to be for a good while. <clears throat> will the way that medicine is practiced be changed? There's been a lot of talk about how great telemedicine is. Telemedicine where my patient calls in and I, I, uh, if they have video um, ability, I can see them on the screen and I practice medicine by speaking to them and then prescribing medicine, giving them advice. Personally, I'm an old timer. I'm an old timer and I think there is tremendous value in having a patient sitting in front of you, examining the patient when touching that patient putting a reassuring arm on their, uh, on their shoulder when I have bad news to tell them or if I wish to reassure them. And is there a role for telemedicine? Yes, but I hope that it will not further compromise things like the physical examination and the doctor-patient interaction in the office. I hope so. I hope it will not, uh, I mean, uh, mitigate that. Next, will our approach to medical futility and unbeneficial medical care be altered? This is a real question. New York State is very conservative when it comes to giving doctors autonomy to make decisions unilaterally, even in circumstances of medical futility. Will the COVID crisis change that afterwards or will it have no effect whatsoever? Will the unethical situation of social determinants of medical inequality be addressed? You probably heard the statistics in Chicago African-Americans comprise 30% of the population. They account for 60% of the deaths of COVID. Why is that? Clearly, it must relate to the fact that um, uh, they are the, the social determinants of health that we talked about, um, unavailability of healthcare, uh, inadequate education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, will, will this COVID crisis, which magnifies this inequality, will we do something about it? And finally, and this is also very important, what can be done to prevent our lack of preparedness in case of future pandemics? The, um, uh, in the present administration, and I believe, uh, I don't know if it occurred in the prior administration, um, the resources for 
an office in the federal government that would deal with pandemics, it was emasculated. Well, if, if you need proof that this is not something that should be done and that we have to prepare for the future, I can't imagine a more strong uh, stimulus for our country to realize that we have to prepare for future pandemics or at least future new um, uh, uh, viral illnesses. We've had, we've had MERS, we've had H1N1, uh, et cetera. We've had the HIV epidemic and so forth. We need to prepare better. We should not be at the mercy of foreign governments to, uh, to uh, produce our uh, PPE. There are a lot of lessons over here. Uh, so um, I think I've given you a lot to think about. I think about this every day. I've asked more questions than perhaps I've given answers, and I, I appreciate your attention. Dr. Prager, on behalf of the Bioethical Issues Committee of the New York City Bar Association, I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us about these important topics, and also to thank you for uh, the dedication and compassion you've shown in an outstanding career helping patients as well as educating students and healthcare professionals and some lawyers as well uh, in working out and working through some of the most difficult issues that they will ever have to confront. So we greatly appreciate your time. Um, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and stay safe. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. This podcast was slightly edited for clarification and reposted on May 18th. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.